Okay, uh, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew. Uh, we've been in the book of Matthew for a long, long time, and we'll be here for quite a while longer, I believe. Uh, but we are currently preaching through this book, uh, verse by verse, uh, but we're doing it kind of differently. We've broken it down into mini-series, uh, and the series we are now in is called The Great Betrayal. And this series is awesome because it covers the last days of the earthly, uh, earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, and, and there's so many powerful and amazing things that happen in these days. Uh, now, last week we discussed how Judas uh, set his plan in motion to betray Jesus. Uh, and we went through all of that. So this week we're going to pick up uh, from there, but we're going to discuss something today that I think all of us struggle a little bit with, and that's the difficulty uh, of, of remaining faithful in times of adversity. And we're going to get to see that this happens even to the people in the Bible like the disciples. So let's jump right in. Okay, um, Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So after they have this, this Passover meal together, Jesus kind of drops a bomb on them. Because he's quoting Zechariah here. right? And basically in this quote he's saying, Listen, I'm going to be killed. They're on their way. The time has come for them to arrest me and take me and, and kill me. Oh yeah, and, and, and by the way, you're going to all abandon me. Okay, because I mean, just imagine, they just had this time, this great time of fellowship, they had this great meal together, uh, he enlightened them with so many things, and now he's saying, okay, the time has come for this to happen, the time has come for me to die, and by the way, you're all going to betray me. Now, he also announced some good news next, in verse 32 he says, but after uh, I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So he Immediately after announcing that, he says, but don't, you know, basically don't be afraid because I'm going to defeat death in the grave. I'm going to be raised again and I'll come and meet you in Galilee. But to be honest with you, I don't think the disciples even heard that. I don't think they heard that at all because they're probably stuck on the whole fact that he's going to die and they're going to betray him. Because that had to be painful. Think about it. I mean, he meant more to them uh, they met, and he meant more to them than anybody. I mean, they loved him. He was their rabbi. He was their master, their shepherd. And not only is he saying he's going to die, he's saying you are going to abandon me. Now, if there's one person that's going to speak up, who would that person be? Peter. It'd be Peter, right? And of course, Peter disagrees with him verbally, right? And he vows his loyalty. Look at this, Matthew 26, 33. It says, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, <laughs> I think this is kind of funny because he really kind of dissed everybody else right there. Did you know that? He looks at him and he goes, yeah, listen, these punks might bail on you, but not me. Because he says, even though uh, all may fall away, I just think, <laughs> just think that's funny. Uh, all may fall away because of you, I will what? I will never fall away, right? Then Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Right? You would think that any intelligent person would say, okay, I'm not going to say anything else. Right? But Peter, being Peter, said, Peter said uh, even if I have to what? Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And now listen, this is very important. All the disciples said the same thing too. Okay, now, in all fairness, pay attention to that last sentence because he wasn't the only one. Right? Yeah, he may have been the one that said it. But they all agreed with him. They all said, yeah, we'd be willing to die with you too before we would abandon you. Okay, so that's what's put out there on the table. But this is one of those passages that makes people really judge Peter harshly. 
Okay, because these are the words uh, that Peter is most often judged for even uttering. I mean, if he could take anything back he ever said, it'd probably be that, wouldn't you think? Because he said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And as we all know, I'm not going to step on the future sermons too much, but as we all know, did Peter follow through with that? No. No, he, uh, he denied Christ three times. Right? Now, the, the irony is, I don't recall him ever even trying to make a stand. He never even tried to stand up and do anything to stand up for Christ. He immediately denied him, and he denied him three times. So, we know he's not going to hold on to that. But now, I believe everyone's judgment of Peter might be a little hypocritical. And I, that's me included. I mean, it's just a little bit hypocritical when we judge Peter for this. Because I truly believe that he had every intention of backing those words up. Don't you? When he first said it, I think he meant it. I think he meant it, and, and he was willing to back those up no matter what. But the problem was he just didn't factor in all the pressure and seriousness of the spiritual warfare that he was about to face. He just didn't factor all that in. Because Peter did what, what all believers do sometimes, and that is he underestimated the enemy. See, you have to remember something. Just like there's a God and there's a heaven, there is the enemy. There's the devil. And everything that God is trying to get you to do, the enemy is trying to get you to not do. Okay, so there's two forces here that are constantly at work. So sometimes we say things, and we really mean them, but our intentions just don't quite pan out. Let me give you an example. How many times have you been singing a praise song this year at church? And you really mean every word, right? For instance, The Stand. I, I love that. How many people love that song? God, I mean, I could charge hell with a water pistol is what they used to say. I, I, I could when I hear that song. It's just an amazing song. I love it, right? And let's look at the words. Let's look at what we're singing, okay? It says, uh, I'll stand with arms high and heart what? Abandoned in awe, okay, in awe and wonder and amazement. Of the one who gave it all, I, I'll stand my soul now to you, what? Surrendered. Surrendered. All I have is, all I have is yours. Now, if we really followed through with that, it would change our lives and everyone would notice that we were serving him, wouldn't they? How many people can honestly say when Monday comes around that you're really that all in, that surrendered? giving everything to him, right? Does that mean you didn't mean it on Sunday? No, you meant it. Just sometimes our promises are greater than our follow-through. Our good intentions are better than our follow-through sometimes, right? I mean, I'm just as guilty. I do the same thing. You know, sometimes on Monday, we just kind of forget about what we sang. And sometimes we, you know, we also don't factor in all the pressure that's going to be on us. And I'm not justifying it, right? Like Peter, we really have good intentions, just bad follow-through, right? Now, the reason it's hard to follow through with our good intentions is simple. There is a constant war going on inside of us, constantly. It's between our flesh and our spirit. There's a war between our flesh and between our spirit. And when I say spirit, I mean the God consciousness in all believers. See, the moment you believe a part of God takes up housing inside of you. That is Holy Spirit, right? Takes up housing inside of all of us. He lives in here, and that's our God consciousness, right? And sadly, we still have 
the consciousness of man in us. We still have our sinful nature. Look at this, Galatians 5.17. Paul said this better than I could. He said, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good what? Your good intentions. So when I say that our flesh is at war with our spirit, there's a spiritual warfare going on there. The spirit is God within us, and the flesh is the part of you that is so easily tempted by the devil, the one that's always telling you to do the opposite. You know, have you ever, have you ever kind of surrendered to the flesh at one time or another? I mean, you know you shouldn't do it. You know you shouldn't do something. And you just, you just do. Has anybody ever done that? Okay, good. The rest of you are so righteous. Um, but I'm just saying, mine is usually traffic. I'm not going to lie. This might shock you guys, but I have road rage. And I got first-class grade-A road rage. And someone will cut me off or do something stupid, because I'm a perfect driver and never make mistakes. And, uh, and I think to myself, you know, you should be the Christian guy and just drive away as I'm yelling, moron, out the window. Right? <laughs> Sorry, hey, I have a sin nature. Don't judge me. But anyway, there are times we give in to that flesh. And if you ever notice that when you do, the spiritual side says, what are you doing? You know, immediately afterwards, it's not worth it. But there are times we give in to the flesh, right? So there is a constant battle going on. And we have to remember when we make, when we make these big statements and when we're praising God, that requires you putting in a lot of effort to keeping what you're promising. Okay, factor in everything. Know what you're committing to. Right now, if you want to see conflict between the flesh and the spirit, the next few verses just nailed that. Let's look at this, starting in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, uh, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Okay, now, it's really important, the location here, because he's going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I don't, if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, we'll look at this in just a second, but this isn't something new to him, okay? He very commonly, it was very normal for him to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He always went to the Mount of Olives to pray. That was one of his places that he loved to pray, where he felt closest to his Father, right? And Luke tells us that. Luke 23, starting in verse 39, says... Uh, and he came out and proceeded, uh, as was, as was what? His customs. That means he's, he did this a lot. Okay, he went here a lot, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. So that's why Judas chose that place to betray him, because he knew he would be there. He knew that that was normal for him, that was a place he liked to pray, so that's why he knew that would be the place to betray him, because, you know, Judas followed him for years, right? Here's the thing, Jesus also knew that Judas knew that, right? If he really wanted to evade capture, he would not have gone there to pray. He would have went somewhere else. That's something to think about. He knew what was going to happen, and he went there, and Judas knew he was going to be there, and he knew this would be the perfect place to catch him, because he had already promised the priest that he would sell him out, right? Now, if you want to know how to have success, and here's something that really bothers me. A lot of times people give me the same answer. I always say, if you want to know how to have success, especially in adversity, 
Watch Jesus. Do what he did. And people always tell me, and I think we just kind of allowed this to be our mistake, I mean, our, our crutch. We say, well, no one can do what Jesus does. Anybody ever said that? Be honest. You know, well, if Jesus did that. I mean, I can't do that. Listen, when, when Jesus set an example, he said it knowing you could do what he was doing. Okay, he never did anything that you could not also do when it came to teaching you how to live your faith. Right? Everything he did, turning the other cheek, I've had people say, only Jesus could turn the other cheek. You're just saying that because you want to punch somebody. That's what it is, because you can turn. Let's have a moment of confession. I love these. Okay? How many people, at least once, have wanted to punch somebody in the face since you've been a Christian? Be honest. Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few. Kick them? How many people want to kick people? Shoot them? Psychos, get your hands down. Sheesh. Now we know who to watch. No, but listen. There comes a time when all of us get angry and we say, there's no way I can, I can turn. Yes, you can turn the other cheek. You just don't want to. You want to listen to the flesh more than you want to listen to the spirit. But there's something real important here that we get to see in Jesus' life. Now, he knows he's about to face huge adversity, adversity like we can't understand. Okay, and this is his last day on earth, and he knows he has literally, you know, minutes, maybe in a little over an hour before they're coming to arrest him. And what does he choose to do? Pray. He chooses to pray. See, prayer is one of the most important things a believer can do. One of the most important things a believer can do, and let's be honest, it's probably one of the biggest things that Christians struggle with, right? But this is his last days on earth, and prayer was his main priority. He wanted to be close to God. He wanted to make sure he was doing what God wanted him to do in this pivotal moment in his life. This shows us the priority Jesus puts on prayer. What should we be doing in those pivotal moments in our lives? We have to make big decisions and make, choose big directions in our life. What should we be doing? Praying, if you're going to follow his example. We should be praying. That's the time we should be wanting to hear from God the most. Okay, that's just a side note. I wanted to make sure you notice that. But listen, listen, here's where it gets kind of strange. Right before he prays, he asks the disciples to do something really simple. He says, just sit here, watch, and pray. Watch and pray. Just sit here and, and watch and pray. Then he takes three of the disciples with him and moves a little bit farther up the mountain, and it's James and John and Peter. And then he asks them the same thing. He says, hey, listen, just sit here and watch and pray, right? Just sit here and watch and pray. Now, that, that doesn't seem like a huge task, does it? Keep your eye out and pray. And the way he prays here reveals something that I think sometimes we forget. Jesus had a conflict between the spirit and the flesh also. Now, people, when I say that, they go, oh, that's blasphemy. Jesus couldn't have a conflict. Yeah, he could. He just couldn't sin. He could still struggle, Right? He was all man and all God. And the, the man side of him was in conflict because he knew what he was about to face. Look at this, Matthew 26, 39. It says, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed. How many people have ever been so hurt, so confused? I mean, just so out of sorts that you just had to fall on your face to pray. Has anybody ever been there? 
I've been there. There's sometimes I just feel like I can't get low enough. I, I read a story about Adrian Rogers, who, who's deceased, great pastor, great preacher. Um, and he said when he first decided to take over to start pastoring, he was 19. But before he would say yes, he went to the football field because he was a big football player. And he said he laid down and he didn't feel like he could get low enough. And he said he took his hands and literally dug out a, fa- a place for his face. He said, I know you think I'm crazy, but I just felt like I couldn't get low enough to hear God like I wanted. And that's when God spoke to him. Now, listen, I know what he means here when he says that he, that he fell on his face and prayed. This is him saying, God, I want to get as low as I have to get so that I can hear from you. I can get direction from you, right? Then he says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Okay, then he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Right now, this is difficult because a lot of people, I think, get this part wrong because Jesus dreaded the crucifixion. Right. But for more than one reason, for more than one reason, you see, obviously his humanity didn't want to go through all of the humiliation and the pain that he was about to go through because crucifixion was the cruelest death anyone could possibly endure. It was terrible. I mean, they would drive spikes through your wrists. It wasn't through the hands. It was through your wrists. And they would drive spikes through the arches of your feet. And then they would lift the cross up and drop it in a hole while you're nailed to it. So when it hit the ground, you would, it would tear as, you, as it jerked. It was a cruel, cruel way to die. So obviously, the humanity in him dreaded all that pain and humiliation. But I do not believe that was the biggest thing he dreaded. I think, obviously, it was one thing, but it wasn't the biggest thing he dreaded. But the biggest thing I think he dreaded was being separated from God completely for the first time. For the first time ever, from eternity past till now, he had never been separated from his Father. They're in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are one. He's never been separated from God the Father, ever. But now he was going to have to be separated. Let me explain that to you. You see, when Jesus was nailed to that cross, he took all of our sin on him. And in the eyes of God, he became our sin. And when I say he became our sin, I'm not talking about just the sins you've done now and in the past. He took every sin in the past, every sin you're going to commit, everything in the future. All sin of all mankind was placed on him. Now, in the Old Testament, they had a ritual with a scapegoat they would do. And they would take the scapegoat, and the priest would lay his hands on it, symbolizing that he was placing the sins of Israel on that goat. And then they would set the goat free, symbolizing the sin leaving the camp. The problem with that whole ordeal was that goat could find its way back, right? I mean, you know what I mean? Put the right stuff out there to eat, and he's going to be gnawing in your backyard again. Similarly, Jesus was going to take on all the sin of the world and get rid of it for good. For good. He had to become sin. I love how Paul put this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He made him, capital H, who are we talking about? Jesus. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be what? To be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in or through him. Okay? And because he took all of our sin, he became the sin of the world, God could not be with him. God had to turn his face from him. This is the first time Jesus ever experienced true and complete 
loneliness. And you can hear it in his cries in Matthew 27. Starting in verse 46, it says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Now imagine, this is, he's never experienced this. Never been abandoned by God the Father. And all of a sudden, he can't feel him with him anymore. He doesn't get his direction. He doesn't get to share hearts with God. He is completely and utterly alone. Israel is rejecting him. His disciples ran from him, and now God has to turn his face from him. Imagine the depth of that loneliness. This is the part that I believe he dreaded the most was this separation he was going to have to go through with God. But he knew it had to be done, so he said, not my will, but your will be done, right? Now, when Jesus was praying, he takes a break and decides to come back to his faithful disciples, right? Because you know they're going to do what he asked because they're faithful, right? Let's take a look at the faithful disciples. Matthew 26, starting in verse 40. It says, and he came to the disciples and found them what? Sleeping, Sleeping like a teenage girl. <laughs> Sleeping. As he found him sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? The flesh is weak. Now, the disciples had to have been exhausted. I mean, they traveled everywhere on foot and they just came up a mountain, right? They were probably dead tired. They were exhausted and they just couldn't stay awake. And a lot of people read this section, they go, I don't get it. What's the big deal? They were tired. How many people have ever fallen asleep praying? Be honest. Raise your hand. That's what I thought. Thank you for your honesty. You're sitting there going, Lord bless. <laughs> and you wake up the next day in that prayer position. I've done that, right? They just couldn't stay awake. What's the big deal? They're tired. Tired people generally sleep. But think about this for a second. He had just warned them that a major spiritual event was about to take place not something minor the son of god who became flesh was about to be arrested tried beaten tortured and murdered he just told him that and then he told him listen and you are going to abandon me they knew that there was a major spiritual event here major spiritual warfare he said he was going to be arrested and murdered Right? I mean, think about this for a second. This meant that the people who were about to have him killed were on their way. They're coming. Right? You would think if anything would energize them and keep them watchful, it would be the fact that a mob was coming to kill their master. Yet, they couldn't. They couldn't stay awake. Not even one hour. And you want to know why that is, my opinion? I don't think they believed he would really die. Do you? They argued with him when he said it. They argued with him. Listen, I think they thought, he'll find a way out of this. We've seen him walk on water. We've seen him pay taxes from a fish's mouth. Right? We have seen him feed thousands with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. We've seen him calm the storms with a word. Surely, the guards 
of the priests are not going to be able to take him down. And I believe they prayed a little bit and said, he'll be fine, and went to sleep. I, I mean, I think that's what happened, right? But again, they underestimated the seriousness of spiritual warfare. They underestimated how powerful the enemy is. So I really believe that Jesus, the reason he was saying, watch and pray, the reason he was saying that was because he was really concerned, really concerned with their spiritual stamina, right? Because he knew that he was going to be gone pretty soon, and they were going to have to carry this ministry of grace on their backs without him. See, they'd always had him. When things went wrong, oh, Jesus will step in. Hey, Jesus, there's a storm up here. Help us out. Wake up. And he comes up in the boat and calms the seas, right? Jesus, we're out of food, right? He takes, you know, a bag from Jerusalem McDonald's fish fillet and feeds everybody, right? He'd always been there to bail them out. And now he's saying, I'm not going to be there. And tough times are coming your way. You have to be able to carry on this ministry without me. You have no idea what you're about to face. You need to watch and pray because you're going to be tempted in ways you can't even imagine after they take me. You're going to be tempted, I don't know, to desert me? To lie? You're going to be tempted in ways you can't even imagine. You need to be praying for strength, right? You need to be praying for strength. And then he says, you know, I get it. The spirit in you is certainly willing to do the right thing. The spirit in you is willing to do that. But your flesh is what? Weak. Here we go back to the physical and the spiritual again, right? Because the physical is always battling with the spiritual, like we said earlier, in the life of every believer. But to be an effective believer, the spiritual has to control the physical. And people say, that can't happen. That's impossible. That can't happen. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting verse 25. It says, everyone who competes in a game exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, and I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline what? My body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Right? So Paul was saying, I make my body get under the control of my spirit. And you know how? Here's the, there's no really no magic recipe. It can be done. You know what the weaknesses of your flesh are. Avoid them. Right? Listen. If you used to be an addict, it's probably not a good idea to hang out with present addicts who are still using. Because that's a weakness in your flesh. So instead of allowing your flesh to be tempted, don't hang out with them. Head that off at the past. Listen, I used to have a problem with my anger. Right? If you ever watch me watching the Steelers game, I still do in some areas. But anyway, but people say, oh, you just don't have a bad temper anymore. I go, yes, I do. Here's the deal. I know the kind of people that are going to tick me off, and I avoid them. If you're always asking me to do something, I say, nope, nope, nope. It might be you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, but I, I realize that's my weakness. I'm not going to put my flesh in that situation because it'll lose. Right? If you're an alcoholic, you probably shouldn't be hanging out with people. If God's delivered you from that, you probably shouldn't be hanging out at the bar, should you? Or with people who are drinking. Because you're putting your flesh in a situation where it can lose. How do you get your flesh under control by your spirit? Use your spirit to understand what God's delivered you from and avoid that stuff. That's where you're weak. 
Avoid that stuff. If you struggled with pornography, you know what to do? Don't be alone in a room with your computer. Find ways to keep your flesh from being in situations where it's weak and you know where it's weak. Sometimes it's not that you don't know, you just don't care. That's on you. You can, you can get your spirit under control. And if the fi- here's how you tell which one's in control. If the physical is in control in your life, then you're only going to seek to please yourself. If you're just thinking about you, the flesh is in charge. But if your desire is to see the will of God done, the Spirit's in charge and you will flee temptation. Okay, now I nowhere said anything self-righteous there. I didn't say anybody's perfect at it. I'm just saying you want to know how to do it, that's how to do it. Right, that's how to do it, avoid it. There's times I let myself get where I shouldn't too. I'm not perfect, far from it. But at least I know that when I get there, I'm there because I overlooked what the Spirit was telling me. The Spirit was telling me to avoid that. That's how you get it under control. The disciples were believers, but the spiritual side just wasn't in control yet. And we saw that because James and John went and had mommy ask if he could make them the greatest in the kingdom. Were they thinking of themselves? That is so lame. You know what I mean? Mommy, go see if we can be the most important in the kingdom. How's their mom out of backhanded them? That's terrible. Now I'm going to have everybody calling me saying I'm an abuser. Anyway, I'm just saying, they, the same disciples were constantly fighting over who was the most important. Right? They, the same disciples, when everybody was hungry, said, leave them, we don't have enough food. Right? They had, it's evident, all through the scripture, they can't stay awake in a serious moment. That physical was still kind of in charge here. All right? So, this is really, really important. Jesus wanted them to pray so they'd have the spiritual strength to face the battle they were about to face. Now, we know from hindsight, how did they fare in their battle when he was arrested? They bombed. What did they do? Every one of them ran. They ran. They didn't stick up for him. They didn't try to, you know, to stand in the gap for him. They didn't try to be brave. They ran. So did they need to be praying for strength? Yeah, that's what he was talking about. You better pray. You don't know what you're going to face tomorrow. You know what you're going to face yet today. Right? Now listen, we're going to see in weeks to come, they should have been praying. Listen, I see the same kind of weakness in a lot of Christians, including myself sometimes. I see it today. Because our faith is under fire all the time. Do you know, never more than now. Our faith is under fire by our government. Tell me you guys haven't noticed that. Under fire by our government. There are some political candidates right now that are threatening to take away religious liberties if we don't agree to like their agenda. They're running on that format. Seriously. I mean, we have, there's so many things that the government is trying to take from us right now. Popular media is on an all-out assault onto Christianity. Do you know that? I mean, you can't watch a TV show without it being full of filth. And every time they have a believer on it, they make them the idiot. They're the village idiot every time they're on a program. The believers are. It's just we are under attack. And what do most Christians do when we're under attack from the government trying to take our freedoms or when social media or when the popular media is attacking us? We sleep. We don't do a dang thing. We sit back and hope somebody else will do something, but we don't do a dang thing. Now, I'm not saying go out and march, and I'm not saying go out and, you know, boycott people. We don't do that. Okay? What I am saying is, You can have your voice heard at the booth. You know what? If Christians wouldn't have been asleep, Roe versus Wade never would have made it. 
You want to know whose fault Roe versus Wade is? It's ours, Christians. We're supposed to be, this country's supposed to be 80% Christians. Where were they at the voting booths when that came around? Where were they? So I don't blame, everybody says, who do you blame, the liberals or conservatives? I blame the Christians. Because he came to find us and we were sleeping. When the schools are attacking our kids' religious liberties, when the media is attacking our religious liberties, turn it off, cancel your subscription. You know what? If you don't, you can't complain at what's going on in this world because you ain't done a dang thing about it. Right? Christians, unfortunately, have been sleeping for too long. We need Christians who are watching and praying. That means strengthening their spiritual side so that we can be battle-ready. We need that. We need to be battle-ready. If believers would just stand their ground, can you imagine how much different this country would be? If we stood our ground and refused to let the few bowl over the many? But we don't. And if we're not careful, one nation under God will become one nation without God. And it's on its way. So just so you know, I'm including me in here. I'm one of the people that was caught sleeping too. But we shouldn't continue to do that. It still happens today. So don't be too hard on the disciples. Now, the same thing happens two more times. Let's look at this with the, with the disciples and sleeping. Matthew 26, 42. He went away and again a second time and prayed saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. Right? And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Listen to this. Then he came back to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping? You know what this makes me think of? When you're trying to get your kid ready for school and you cannot get them out of bed. <laughs> the bus is going to be here in 15 minutes. Seriously, get up. This is what I think of. Because people go, Oh, Jesus never got frustrated. Oh, I bet he was frustrated here. Okay, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us, uh, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So basically what happens, he goes up to pray. He says, get my back, watch for me, pray for me. And they don't watch for him, and they sleep until the attackers come. They literally sleep until the mob gets there, armed and ready. That's who you want having your back, right there, right? Slept right up to the attack. And who's leading the charge when this mob comes to get Jesus? Who do you think it is? It's Judas. It's Judas. All right, let's jump into this. Matthew 26, 47. It says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, he, was betraying him, he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they, gave, uh, then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So last week, remember we discussed when all the disciples asked, Is it me, Lord, that was going to betray you? When Judas, last of all, said, is it me, Lord? He says, it, it is as you have said. Remember I told you, I, I think the reason the other disciples didn't hear that was because I believe God didn't want them to hear it because they might have tried to stop it. So they were kind of blinded to the fact that he was the betrayer. But in verses 47 through 50 here, the blinders came off. They knew who the betrayer was, right? He said, whoever I kiss, that's the one. That's what, that's what Judas told the soldiers. And he kissed Jesus. Now listen, Jesus knew he was being betrayed. But he didn't scold Judas or try to fight. Why? 
He could have looked at him and said, Judas, you dirty punk. After all I've done for your sorry butt, you sold me out with a kiss. That's just nasty. He could have said that. He didn't say a word. He could have fought his way out. Remember, we're talking about the Son of God here. Do you know Jesus is, the, God the Son, Jesus is the creative influence of the Trinity. He's the one that created all things. He could have said, and all you soldiers are flower pots, and it would have happened. <laughs> he could have done that. He didn't. Or he, could, he could have done that, but he didn't. Why? Because Judas served an important purpose. Someone had to betray him so he could be arrested, so he could be tried, so he could be found guilty, so he could be crucified, so he could rise again and give us eternal life. That had to happen. So he was willing to let it happen. That's why he didn't do anything. But you can definitely see the love of God and how he treated his captors. Look at this, starting in verse 51, Matthew 26. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, I love the Gospels because they give you different views. Listen to what Luke does. Luke gives us a little more detail. Verse, it's Luke twenty two forty seven. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw uh, what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. That is gangster. 51. But Jesus answered, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and what? And healed him. Who do you think it was that did that? John's gospel tells us. John 18, 10. Simon Peter then, shocker, it was Peter. Peter's the one that pulls the sword. Who'd have thought, right? John 18, 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. He even gives us the soldier's name whose ear was cut off. Now, a lot of people say, wow, Peter must have been a swordsman. He pulled out a sword and cut off his ear. No. Peter was a fisherman. He was probably aiming for right here and just missed and whacked off his ear. That's probably what I think happened. Peter's good. He probably even looked awkward. <laughs> you know, <laughs> wax off his ear. You really think he thought, I'll teach you, I'll cut your ear off. Nobody does that. He was trying to split his head and missed, right? So Peter's the one that pulls this out. And how does God react? And I say God because all God was in control right now, right? He says, put that away. And he heals the ear of one of the soldiers that came to put him to death. Now, I can't prove this, but I would wager that that man ended up becoming a believer. What do you think? Because I'm telling you, if somebody makes my ear grow back, I'm in. I don't think there's many questions after that. You made an ear that was lapped off by a fisherman grow back, I'm your guy. Right? I, I think he ended up believing. Right? And Jesus healing this soldier should tell us one more thing. Right? The real power in our faith isn't in how loud we are, isn't in how much we tell everybody what we disagree with, isn't in how much we have theological debates. The real power in our faith is our love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Right? So every situation we endure as believers, it's important to understand. All those trials, all those tribulations, are an important opportunity, and that opportunity is for us to show people that we're different. We don't react like the world does. We don't fight back. 
We don't get violent. We don't tell people we hate them. We react by showing people the love of God and they see a difference in us and they want a relationship with him. That's where the power of our faith lies in the love that we show other people. There's the power of our faith. And it takes a strong faith. I mean, a strong faith to allow God's love to determine our actions rather than our emotions. When you can put away what you want to do and do what God does because you love those people, that's the most powerful faith there is out there. And that's what we got to see here. See, one thing you're going to find is that the devil knows that the easiest way to make us stay out of God's will is to keep us angry. That's why I'm not for people. I say, you want to go with us and march and boycott this? No, I don't. Because I don't think people see the love of Christ with people walking around with a stupid picket sign calling people names. You know, that just makes us look stupid. I said, wait, Pastor, are you calling them stupid? Yeah. Yeah, I'm calling that stupid. And whoever carries it, yep, them too. Right? It is stupid because the enemy has sucked you right into his trap. Do you know you can't be right and be mad? You cannot be righteous in the eyes of God and be mad. Right? Listen. James 1.20, everybody should know this. For the anger of man does not achieve what? The righteousness of God. Now, there is an anger that, that isn't sin, and that means if you're angry about something, but you take it to prayer. But anger that makes you react in sin, there's no way. And if you want to know if what you're doing is wrong or not, if you're mad and making that decision, it's wrong. I don't have to know what it is. I mean, I didn't write this. He did. For the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Now imagine what would have happened if, this, if the disciples would have successfully, through anger and energy, fought off all the guards and freed him. He would have become a fugitive. He would have looked like the leader of a revolt. They would have hunted him down in a manhunt and brought him back to trial. And you know what it would have looked like? It would have looked like he was getting what he deserved because only a leader and a guilty leader of a revolt would run in the first place. There was no winning if they would have freed him. That's why he had to step in. Right? They didn't need a revolutionary leader. They needed a savior. And that's what he was there to be. I just think that's so important. Now Jesus reminded Peter one more thing. that He wasn't being captured. He was surrendering. Matthew 26, 53 says, Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? A Roman legion was 6,000 men. So at at a breath, he could have had 72,000 angels from the armies of God coming in and saying, I don't think he's going with you today. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's like, oh, you know what? I think you should put your clubs down. What do you think? He could have said, he said, but listen, listen, he said, I could stop this in an instant. But then what I was sent here for would be wasted. The scripture said this is how it has to happen. Right? And at that time, verse 20, uh, 2655, it says, At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples, what? Left him and fled. What Jesus was saying here was really important because he was saying, You are proving that I am who I said I was. Because you could have taken me at any time. I didn't hide. I didn't have camel on and hanging out in the trees and bushes. I was right in the middle of the square. I was at wedding. I was feeding thousands. You can't hide a guy feeding thousands. I was walking on water. How do you hide that guy? 
I calm storms with my voice. I've done everything I've done out in the open, and the reason you didn't take me is because it wasn't God's time for you to take me. I had to accomplish everything the law said I had to accomplish, everything the prophet said. And now that I've accomplished all that, you're coming to get me. So you're coming to get me at this time proves one major thing. I am the Son of God because you've made sure the Scripture is fulfilled. Because in Zechariah 13, 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, capital S, and against my man, uh, against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against these little ones. Jesus knew that sometime they were going to look back, the Jews who knew all scriptures, and they were going to look at every piece of that puzzle and how it came together right to the end, and they were going to say, oh my gosh, it fits perfectly, he was the Messiah. So in a way, Jesus was saying, why didn't you come and get me? Because God wouldn't let you, it wasn't time. I had to fulfill all these things, and that is what I've done. Okay, I want to close there. Before I do, I want to ask you two questions. I'm running a little bit over, but I got the mic. Okay, two questions. How would you react if your faith was under fire? Do you know? I'll tell you one thing. If you're not preparing, it won't be successfully, and you can only prepare through prayer and study. Trust me. And here's the other thing. You need to make sure, is your spiritual side in control, or is it your flesh? That's something we need to check every day. Are we doing what we do to please God or to please us? That'll answer the questions. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. If you're not sure where you stand with Christ, listen, we, there is no believer that's better than any unbeliever. As a matter of fact, we don't deserve it. You don't, and we don't. We are here because we accept it's God's grace, and you have not. We are both equally do not deserve heaven, but we both equally can have it free of charge by faith alone. God loves you as much as he loved me. And for someone here who doesn't know where they stand, if you'd just like me to pray for you, and I'm not going to point you out and have you come down, I don't do that. I'm just literally going to pray for you. Just lift your head and make eye contact with me and put it right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm just going to pray for those people. I'm not going to chase you down. Listen, if you're watching online or listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. But believers, I want to pray for us too because listen, we need to watch and pray. The time is drawing short. The day is marching close like that, that crowd was marching to get Christ, and we have got to be ready. We need to get our focus back. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I just thank you for your love and your mercy and your kindness. It's beyond me how you can love people that you know will never be good enough. But we are so thankful that you do. We just pray, God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, that they will trust you that whatever's holding them back, they'll push it out of the way and just trust your word. Because your word promises that they believe that, that your death, burial, and resurrection was enough to guarantee their eternal life. If they can trust that, you've promised them they'll have it. If they make that decision, I pray they contact one of us or a good Christian organization or friend that they know. And God, for those of us who are believers, please wake us up. Please put a fire under us. Let us get passionate. We want to reach as many people as we can before the time comes. And Lord, we know we can if we would arm ourselves with your knowledge and prayer and love. Just give us the strength to trust your love to guide our lives. We just thank you, we praise you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.